Hello, and welcome to Femme On Poetry Theater. I'm your host, Ada McCartney. Each episode features an interview with a fellow poet wherein we exchange news, share work, speak on inspiration and dialogue about the process of etymological transformation. Thank you for joining us. Hello, and welcome to Femme on Poets Theater. I'm delighted to be here today with fellow Michigander and neurodivergent poet Emily Stoddard. Um, Emily and I have never met in the flesh before, so I'm delighted to be meeting here for the first time in the Zoom universe. Um, thanks to COVID for bringing Zoom into the picture, I suppose. Um, Emily, it's great to have you. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited for this conversation. So you are living and writing from Michigan. What's news in Michigan right now? What's news in your world? Oh, um, well, Lake Michigan is always news to me. I mean, it's <laughs> often where I start when I think about Michigan is Lake Michigan. I'm waiting for Lake Michigan to sort of freeze over. It's kind of not been at the sp spot it usually is this time of year because the blizzard we have had gave way to just sort of like quiet weather. So um, I'm looking forward to when we get the big ice pack on Lake Michigan. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's probably like weather is often the news for me in the winter. So yeah. <laughs> I love that. Weather is weather is often news for me, even though I'm living somewhere where it's not often news because it's often the same. How close are you to Lake Michigan? Are you are you like proximate to it that you can check in with the lake every day, every week or a little further inland? Right now I am further inland and I can uh, actually like feel that <laughs> I can feel when I am away from her. Um, and I have a place up north that um, is like becoming sort of my home place. And um, that is very close to Lake Michigan. So that is exactly what you were saying of like, I check in with her, I visit. Um, when the salmon were running, you know, earlier or at the end of last year, I was down by the river <laughs> watching the salmon run and do their thing. So water and that relationship is really has always been a big part of my life, but definitely in this season of my life is becoming like a central thing for sure. Mm. Is that part of the part of the decision to move up north to closer to the lake? Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Which we're I mean, it's early in that process. So I don't know. But it's kind of one of those things. And I think, you know, as a fellow Michigan person, I think you'll get it. There's something about the land here and the energy here that when you start feeling pulled to some of those things, if it's meant to be, it just starts happening. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> so. So I, I tend to go with it, especially if Lake Michigan is calling the shots. I'm like, I'll listen. I'll follow, you know. <laughs> you can't not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could not, but yeah, I've never yeah. felt. But you'd be a much sadder person if you didn't just listen, you know. So it's like it's, she's never led me astray. So I'll, I'll go with it. So, yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I hope the ice pack comes soon. I feel like it's often here in January already. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm curious to when I get back up there next to see where it's at. But I know, you know, I start looking at past year pictures, like, was I standing on a mountain of, of ice at this time of year? <laughs> like, uh, which usually around February you can. So, yeah. We're almost there. Yeah. Um, Emily, I would love to know, I'd love to know your poetry origin story. What, okay. how, and I, 
my guess and my curiosity is that Michigan and that lake have something to do with it. Yeah, um, it's interesting with poetry because there's sort of like, for me, the craft and the form of poetry origin story. And then there's the kind of origin story of just like the poetic mind or way of attention. And so my relationship to the form and craft of poetry didn't actually really set it in until college at Michigan State. But my sort of uh, poetic sensitivity <laughs> definitely was with me, you know, from birth. And I think this is also part of being a neurodivergent person is there's just a way of feeling the world, hearing sounds, being sensitive to things, a kind of synesthesia of like, that word is a soft word, or it reminds me of this emotion, and it's blue, and it feels like Lake Michigan in the middle of July on this specific kind of human day. It's like, <laughs> words have that kind of texture to me. Um, and definitely, you know, being in a place like this, being raised in a place like this, like informed all of that. Um, so I definitely from an early age had a love of language. I was the kid and I'm still am privately, you know, the adult because it's not always very socially acceptable to go around repeating words. But <laughs> when I was a kid, it was like they were spells almost. I could just say them over and over. Um, personal favorite is there was a, a commercial for gravy that was homestyle gravy. And to this day, my family still laughs about me just walking around. There's videos of me just staring at the video camera going homestyle, homestyle, homestyle <laughs> over and over because I loved I still am very seduced by the sound of an O and an L, <laughs> an mm. open sound followed homestyle. by the water of an L. I just love that. I love it. So it was a perfect word for me, even though it came from a ridiculous source, which I think is exactly how this kind of brain works. It sort of mm -hmm. says, I don't care what the source is. I love something in it and I'm going to find some other bizarre connection to make to it. Um, and it, it makes sense to me, you know? Um, so yeah, that's kind of, for me, I think where I would say like poetry really began in its most like elemental kind of way. Um, and I know you had asked about me maybe sharing a poem or two. And I feel like one of the poems in the book does kind of resonate with that so if you wanted me to share that, I would one, love that okay. yeah okay. Okay, we can cool. we can share poems all I'd love okay that. <laughs> I thought it might be more fun to weave them in than try to you know yes find another spot for them so um so this one is uh I might have been a botanist mm -hmm. I might have been a botanist if they had let me stay inside the elementary school biology class if I had not been sent to the chapel to kneel when my parents worried I was not ready for the reproductive habits of flora and fauna. As it is, exile did what it does, made the forbidden more ripe, and so I became a poet instead. When I finally got to see the parts, it was everything my parents feared. I was seduced. More, I said. Tell me your name, I said. Without the restraint of a scientist, the garden was left to green harder and harder, formed lush and private in my mind where there is never any drought. The penchant trees, their xylem and phloem, one path to carry water, another to descend with sugar for the root. Black walnut's soapy smell and its many-chambered pith, which is enough to know it is not the tree of heaven. Flora mm. climbs my throat. No wonder I wake up with new roots. Datura, acer negundo, in my mouth. O purple stalk, my teacher now, 
Yesterday you were a sign of life, but today, so I've learned, you are loose strife. And I am ripping you out before you choke, bee bomb, ironweed, bone set. O anther, O stigma, O filament, don't be mistaken. I was loved so carefully, so tediously, like a daughter. They only forgot to ask what I am a daughter of. Mm. When I read that poem initially, it reminded me of Emily Dickinson. I've been watching the Apple TV show a lot. And at one point in the show, she she gets a green, her dad builds her a greenhouse to like, mm-hmm. The, and the impetus is it's a bribe. Like, I'll build you this greenhouse. You can have whatever you want, as long as you don't, like, leave or do anything that I don't want right, to do. Right, right. <laughs> um, but hearing you read it, there was more There was more freedom to it than I initially mm-hmm. picked up on. And um, so, so hearing that origin, that origin of sort of poetic sensibility establishing itself in weaving into this relationship with the botanical world, the elemental world. How do you find your way from that to studying poetry in college at, at MSU? Go green. Um, yeah, yeah, go white. <laughs> uh, I would be, my partner went to MSU. I'd be remiss okay. if I didn't yeah, say that. I, uh, I'm a Kalamazoo College kid myself. Oh, um, there's, they're great too, though. So, yeah. <laughs> but was it a pretty, was it a pretty direct trajectory for you from, mm-hmm. from elementary, from loving, loving words like home style, loving, loving linguistics of the botany classroom to, to studying poetry, or was it more of a wavy uh, path? Wavy is the name of the game for me. I'm so (laughs) restless. (laughs) I think I kind of, in a way, did the English major just so I could sort of tuck all of these things into one spot and not have to perfectly declare you know there was enough well they use your word freedom you know <laughs> like because I did a Spanish minor and a sociology minor um and because I wasn't quite sure like what there there were just so many things that made me curious um so I didn't quite know where it would lead and I, I didn't necessarily go to Michigan State thinking like I'm gonna study poetry but I knew I wanted to take a poetry class. I knew I was interested in it. I had dabbled in it. And then I ended up um, having uh, Diane Wachowski for my professor. Yeah. <laughs> and she is, oh man, it was like the perfect person for me to find. I think she's the kind of professor you have to meet her at the right time. Like if you're not quite ready for her style, she might you know, really break your heart, <laughs> mm. you know, cause she is very direct. She's very uh, clear about what poetry can do. And she's very, um, I don't know. She's just, there's a style about her, like a direct energy that was perfect for where I was at. And so she didn't really like teach us. It was more like modeling poetry's possibilities. And Mm -hmm. I was completely enthralled by that. She had a way of working with images in particular. She has, I mean, her own poetry is so rooted in image 
but in how she showed us what to do with images in our poem and how she called out when we were just leaning on cliches to do the work that a metaphor could have done. And why did you miss this thing that was happening in the first stanza? This is the image. Go back. Bring it back when it's really ready. You know, I mean, that's <laughs> her vibe. And I loved it. I loved learning that that's what images could do because I have such an image and sound centric kind of head already. Um, that was my experience of the world. I already had a relationship to like my dreams and dream imagery. So to meet someone who said, oh, that's exactly where poetry can begin. And here's what it looks like in terms of the choices you can make on the page. It was it, it just hooked me basically. I was, so I took everything I could with her. I studied poetry with Diane for three years. Um, wow. Yeah. 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 So that, that really, I think that's where my relationship to poetry as a form and craft began was with her. And I think I'm, I'm curious that was at Michigan state and have how, I know that since then you have, you've written a book, you've probably written more than one book, but there's a, a book yeah. of poems in the world, Divination with a Human Heart. Um, you have embarked on this project to essentially open source poetry publishing mm -hmm. um, resources with anybody who wants them. I'll, I'll link the spreadsheet in the show notes. It's amazing. Um, did that stem from your workshops at MSU with Diane Wachowski into, as well or is there more is there more to the story oh man yeah I uh I so there was the intensity of loving the work and in, in college and then there was the reality of you know trying to go and make a life and pay the bills and um I got married young, eventually got divorced young. There was just a lot in my twenties. I was a very, and you know, I, I was undiagnosed ADHD. I didn't know until my mid thirties. So my twenties were basically acting from impulse in the like strongest sense of the word <laughs> and not having any idea kind of what it's, what the mechanics were, you know, behind mm. all it, feeling it, feeling very emotional about it, you know, because I don't think it's all a bad thing. I think there was a lot of good that came out of it. But um, yeah, I mean, I was I moved a lot in my 20s. I moved jobs a lot in my 20s trying to figure things out. I was on a really aggressive career path as a communications consultant. And when you're doing all those things, um, it's just there's no room for poetry. There's no space. Uh, and so it wasn't until I got married, found a another partner who was a different kind of match for me. Um, still friends with the first one. He's great, but <laughs> you know, you just find out where you're matched. And so uh, my second husband uh, actually ended up, I was trying to get back to poetry and for a gift, he gave me a writing retreat with um, Susie, Susan Rich and Kelly Russell Agadon um, called Poets on the Coast. It was on the West Coast. And we could not afford such a thing at that time, but he knew I really needed <laughs> a way back. And um, I had connected with them online and just resonated with their work and didn't know where to begin. And I was in such a like consultant kind of space. And I was doing a lot of, it was all with nonprofits and social change and which sounds great on paper, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think you understand. I can, I can always tell when someone has been there. 
Um, a lifetime of working. Oh, okay. Yeah. With. So from the time, I mean, from my teens through till I was about early 30s, I was working with grant making and committees and, you know, all of that, um, which can be really, it's just, it wears on your heart when you're an emotional person. And um, so, and I had been so used to sort of presenting things to funders for money and polishing things that you end up, my husband put it just blankly, you have forgotten how to be shitty. You need mm-hmm. to remember how to be <laughs> shitty because <laughs> you have to be on so much. You're presenting so often that cool. You've gotten kind of, it's a mask really. I, I polished that mask all day long. I mean, that was who I was. It was, um, but to take that off and go to just the raw space of writing again and not knowing what I wanted to say or even who it was for, um, that mm-hmm. was a really, I had to like, build a different kind of tolerance for it which he's he's a Sagittarius he's a truth teller so he just said you need to remember how to be shitty go away be <laughs> shitty you know <laughs> I yeah. love that you need to remember how to be shitty how to not yeah. how to not be that it's okay and that it's necessary to not be good at something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. yeah yeah I've held very close to that when I lead writing workshops and stuff I I pretty much just pass his wisdom along. I always give him credit, but because I've met so many writers who they think something's wrong with their themselves, with their voice, with their writing. They think it's a gap in terms of craft. And it's like, oh, 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 this is really going to upset you, but it's actually nowhere near as elegant or complex. You just need to be shitty, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, because he was right. I mean, he was absolutely right once I got to that space and you can't get to craft and you can't get to a creative choice and technique unless you've been in that space first it, the writing needs it um so then it's liberating once you figure that out but at first it's terrifying you know <laughs> so it's terrifying that to to think because when, when you're not in that space or used to being in it you don't it doesn't occur to you that the shitty first draft is that starting point and that without that you can't get anywhere else in mm-hmm. at least in my mind when I've been in that spot it's like oh well if i I write something shitty, it's going to be my legacy. It's going to be like, it's going to be attached to me forever. Yes, Um, yes, yes. And in fact, it doesn't work like that. Yeah, yeah. Like no one has to know you're doing that. You know, no one has to see it. (laughs) It doesn't have to be on Instagram. It doesn't. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So you went to this retreat in San Francisco and you sort of embarked in the journey of remembering how to, how to be shitty at something, Mm -hmm. how to, how to get in, in that space and just let it flow. Um, And I've noticed that a lot of the poems in divination with a human heart. um, Well, I I guess there's two things I want to ask. So I'll start with the first one. Um, How, how did that evolve? How did, how did this particular book, did it evolve sort of from there directly? Is it, um, part of like an arc of various projects that you have going on what's your what's your process with it so I mean the easiest way to to respond to that is I didn't want it to evolve I didn't want this book to be my first book (laughs) I I very much resisted this book I was okay I got okay with the being shitty I was writing I was working on a different book entirely Um, I loved you know, sure, I'll do nature, I'll do um, my, you know, 
myth and mythical relationship to nature. I will do all of that. But alongside all of this, I've, I've been doing um, just a lot of, well, I think with being a restless person comes sort of that seeking personality to understand why things are the way they are. Why do people believe what they believe? I was raised Catholic and that created its own system of questions and images and lots of challenges. Um, and I, I've always felt kind of an insider outsider to that tradition. Um, and so, and I'm like a total genealogy geek. So alongside that, I'm doing family stuff, you know, to understand what did my family believe and why, and where is this in me? And like, what is right for challenging or tussling with in some way. But to me, that was all sort of work for me personally and not necessarily work I was going to be writing about. Um, mm. But what started happening is it started, which, you know, in retrospect, of course, it seems really neat, like, oh, it all bled into each other. And obviously, but at the time, you just, when you're in the midst of that space, you you don't think of it that way. Or in my case, I did not want that to happen. I was actually really uncomfortable with how I showed up spiritually, um, being in West Michigan, especially it's the land of Christian reform, conservative, you know, this is Betsy DeVos's hometown. Again, Bible yeah. Yeah. So like, this is not an easy place to say I am from this, but not of it entirely. Here's how I identify. Um, it feels a bit like a coming out in terms of spiritual identity. And I just didn't know how or if I wanted to do it. So when certain themes and memories started popping up saying, hey, I want a poem about me, I was not happy about that. I I said, no, thank you. I don't want to write about my dad being Jesus in the Passion Play. No, thank you. I don't want to write about, um, you know, how I think that this is a little bombastic sometimes and how I find a lot of dark humor in spirituality. And I think a lot of it is sometimes ridiculous, you know, the way we cling to it. Um, and what does that say about us that we want freedom, but we cling to something because of religion? Um, so I wasn't really ready to write about those things, but then what started happening is I started having dreams where images started coming through. Um, there's a, a kind of a suite of persona poems in the book about Petronilla, the daughter of St. Peter. Um, she's kind of the apocryphal or mythical daughter of St. Peter. Um, I didn't know I was writing about her. I was having dreams with this person who was giving me keys and she kept giving me keys and they were marked five, three, one. And those are numbers that in my family mean something. They're connected to Mary. So I thought that was for that. And once again, I was like, no, I'm not going to write a Catholic freak book. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> you know. And I thought, okay, eventually I just need to at least let the poems come through, let them happen. Um, but I don't have to do anything with them. Or then I started negotiating. This can be my second book. I don't have to start <laughs> with this, this intense book. Um, and then eventually started finding out, like, I when I said, I, I discovered more about Petronilla and realized that's who it was in my dreams, looked up, I was like, I've never looked up her feast day. It's May 31st, 531. <laughs> so it was one of those things of, okay, now I've got to be paying attention. Now, like, I, my thing is, I think if I have any guardian angels, they just play a lot of jokes on me and they wait until I find the punchline. And then once I find the punchline, okay, I can't ignore it. Like, fine, I'll laugh. I'll listen now. Let's go. You know, so it's kind of honestly how the book went. I, I, it was years of just fighting it. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, 
might you be interested in reading us one of the Petronilla poems? I yeah. I personally found them hilarious. Oh God, I'm, <laughs> I'm so- glad to hear you talking about humor. Um, I, so I laughed out loud that. reading this book more than I've laughed reading a book of poetry and especially one that's so like rooted in religion you have a bunch of your your sources are the um, Gnostic uh, mm-hmm. texts and yet I was you know sitting on my couch just like giggling snorting <laughs> <laughs> that makes um, me so happy and relieved because I really I just really take that to heart because not everyone tracks with the underlying current of like isn't this ridiculous even <laughs> um so I really appreciate that it sat with you that way <laughs> absolutely yeah. I think p- partly for me I my mom is from the Amish she her parents left the Amish when she was very young both of my parents grew up in Michigan I grew up in the same small town they both grew up in mm-hmm. and have a very Mm, akin to what you're describing kindred relationship with the spiritual religious connotations of my upbringing yeah Um, so it it tickled me to read to read those poems that's I that's really really great I yeah I and I hope for for folks who might you know I hope it's not just a catholic book because I feel like anyone who has had that kind of um intensity of relationship to any tradition like we all I've, I've followed a lot of women coming out of the Mormon tradition, and I am struck by how often the way they describe their relationship to that patriarchal mindset, it's the same in so many ways, so, so many ways. And I, I kind of wish for some sort of like inner religious space where we could all just go, hey, let's trade notes or let's just laugh about this. Or it doesn't even have to be deep and heavy work, but just to say, like, I see you. Um, I think it's just it's so meaningful like you know so here's to a recovery group of women leaving yes. patriarchal religion yeah, yeah exactly but not you know sometimes I feel like there's this pressure of now we've all got to go create the next thing and solve the problem and mm-hmm. I think there's a space for us to also just go hey let's acknowledge what this was let's name it um, and yeah, I don't think we always have to be the hero of the next thing. I think part of no. the original problem was there's too many heroes, you know? <laughs> so. Oh, I love that. I love, and the, too many heroes and too many heroes taking themselves very, very seriously. Mm-hmm. I loved your, your penchant to laugh, to find mm-hmm. a group to laugh together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're game for that, I, I, I'd sign up in a heartbeat. So, you know, maybe that'll be an outgrowth of this conversation. <laughs> I love yeah. that. Yeah, I watched a lot of um, stand-up, actually, while I worked on the book. Uh, dance and comedy are the two, like, interdisciplinary places I go when I'm stuck or when I need to see how other people sort of collage their work together or practice their craft. I think, for me, in my writing, um, those two are just the most life-giving. So, Dance and stand-up comedy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I I have always thought I was really a weirdo in my obsession with dance as um, an interdisciplinary. Like I never took dance classes as a kid or anything, but that's Mm -hmm. my go-to for that's really interesting. Discovering outside of poetry and theater. Yeah, we should trade our playlists because I I definitely like I even did a improv dance class um, with Mar Grace as sort of like when I was because she's from Grand Rapids. She's from. But yeah. lives in Ann Arbor. Uh, now oh. she's up north, actually. She went, she got the call of the water, too. So, <laughs> or they, I think, sorry, I might have 
use the wrong pronoun, but, um, so yeah, Mars amazing. And, um, there was, uh, she did like an improv dance class she did in Grand Rapids and they just sort of held it as an open space. And I had never done anything like that, but I thought I need some other way out of my body in relationship to this material. And, um, and it's just another way of being shitty, you know, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, I've hit a block in the writing itself. So I need to find another avenue to go feel what total newness feels like. Um, and dance for some reason is the space where I do that. So, yeah. Have you ever tried stand-up comedy as a similar exercise? <laughs> no, I've thought about an improv class. Um, my first husband actually was is one of the most hilarious people I know. And he was into that. So maybe there's a little bit of a holdover from that. Um, so I've got a lot of exposure to that sort of stuff, uh, but always sort of as an admirer, like studying it and not so much as someone doing it. So have you tried it? <laughs> My background is in theater. I went to Kalamazoo okay. College on an acting scholarship, took lots of improv classes, um, I don't think I'm very funny. Um, I've been part of improv groups that have done comedy shows, and I've always felt like kind of the like weak team member in those moments. Yeah, but I love it. <laughs> it's, um, it's a good vulnerable, you know, practice. I think. Um, I don't. I think those are ways too, especially as you get older. So many people just sort of become static, and I'm like, I cannot stagnate I refuse to I just like that's that restless thing of like I refuse to stagnate so I've got to go find another way another outlet um yeah yeah so there's probably some improv in my future <laughs> maybe yeah, that's maybe that's the group we connect it with the you know the laughing yes. uh recovery Ooh. group <laughs> yeah stand-up comedy and improv for women mm -hmm. women of religious traditions <laughs> yeah I, even if it's just you and me, I think that would still be fun. So, oh my God, I'm yeah. here for it. Um, oh, that's a, so yes, let's trade playlists. Okay, um, cool. And I know I, I would, I'd still love for you to read one of the Petronella poems if oh, you're yeah. game, um, or if you have another daughter, uh, daughter poem that stands out to you that you'd love to share. Maybe I'll read, um, I think I'll do the one, let me see. I think I'll do the, the first one where uh, it introduces Petronella and um, there's a little epigraph from the Acts of Philip that kind of explains it. So this is Petronella tries to imagine her father's prayer. And there's three times throughout the book that she tries to imagine his prayer. Um, and this is the epigraph. Peter, the leader, thus fled from every place where there was a woman. Moreover, he was scandalized due to his daughter, who was very beautiful. Therefore, he prayed to the Lord, and she became paralyzed on one side, so that she might not be beguiled. And we can talk more about this if you want. But at that time, what I learned from Dr. Megan Henning, um, who had done academic research on Petronella, paralysis was associated with infertility. So this prayer is really a prayer, as I have imagined it in the book, of praying for her lineage to end. And why would the first father of the church make that kind of prayer for essentially the first daughter of the church? That's my big question. So, so this is Petronilla tries to imagine her father's prayer. 
Which part of my body most worried him? Was it the eyes? My shoulders? The cap of my elbow? What is it like to see my body as he once saw it? Beautiful and charged, able to swing the gaze of a man and make him forget the sea, make him forget his fishing nets, make him leave everything and follow. Has there ever been a body like that that hasn't been dangerous? Has there ever been a body like that that hasn't been dangerous? Mm. The weird thing with the Petronilla poems is I really don't feel like I wrote them. And I know that's a really like I don't want to give myself too much credit for like hearing things. But all the Petronilla poems, I, I describe it as like something fell in my ear. Um, it was always like a line fell in my ear. They're, they have a rhythm that is not my natural rhythm as a poet. I think it's not necessarily like my natural voice. They definitely feel like persona poems to me. Um, like it's myth-making kind of like when Lucille Clifton writes about Eve, you know? Um, so I, even like you saying that, like, has there, I still repeat the lines going like, what, what, you know, what more is there there? Because I just received it. It's not something that, um, was orchestrated. So it's still like those poems to me are still like maybe the most living in the book because I'm still learning from them too. So. I don't find that weird at all. I think part of part of poet part of part of being a poet both like uh I think in myself and the tradition of the poet mm -hmm. is a scri is scribe to to scribe yeah. to hear to hear what is coming down to be open to mm -hmm. what's around and and transpose it into language mm -hmm. um, whether speaking or writing I think that's I, I think that's a beautiful thing to to recognize um and and be open to because as you said it sometimes is a, a fight when you yes you'd rather be my my ego would rather be working on something else I'd rather mm -hmm. I'd rather be doing this project this seems you know mm -hmm. not important or not worthy or too personal or too scary um mm -hmm. but then to open yourself up to it in spite of all of that and let it come through mm -hmm. um is powerful yeah I think you mentioning the ego that I talk about that a lot with writers and workshops and stuff. Like when we get a chance to talk about revision and ego and like one of my favorite questions to ask when I'm revising, especially poetry, but anything really is where has the speaker been implicated and where do they implicate themselves and why or why not? How um, are they only doing it for certain material? And what does that tell us? <laughs> Are they only doing it after certain caveats? And what does that tell us? Um, yeah, I, I'm really curious about the way that ego plays in to the revision process in particular um, and sort of, yeah, how we, how we hold ourselves accountable, I guess, or, or implicate ourselves um, or just get out of the way. Like with Petronilla, mm -hmm. it was just making sure I got out of the way a lot of the time. So, or gave up, I guess would be <laughs> simpler way to say it I gave up fighting <laughs> mm. yeah and so and sometimes sometimes surrender sometimes surrender is is all there is um and it's not until we we recognize the need for and then let ourselves surrender that it can come through mm -hmm. which is um. not a natural gift of someone with ADHD <laughs> I don't do that at all you know it's all or nothing or bust so um 
yeah, that's probably why it took about 10 years to finish this book. You know, it was a 10 year process from the learning okay. how to be shitty to finding its publisher. And I really don't think the form of the book, the kind of the way it's structured now, that didn't come until like maybe the last two years of the process. And that's when it really was its final form, I think. So, yeah. So in those first five, six years, you were you were hearing the poems, you're making the poems, you're working on this other stuff and this is kind of coming through you mm -hmm. and you're just sort of like stacking them mm -hmm. in a folder, setting them aside, letting them sort of stack up. And then when, do you remember the moment when, when it went from being this sort of like thing on the side or these like poems mm -hmm. that are just over here to saying, this is something I need to turn it, it's, it's a book and, and putting it into that final form. I, I definitely think realizing the dream with Petronilla was Petronilla, that finding out her feast day is May 31st, that that moment was one of those clicking in moments of, oh, and kind of like an, oh, God, <laughs> you know, I've got to do this now. Um, and <laughs> so that, there was probably still some resistance in that. Um but then the other thing that happened is I did, because I was sending out the manuscript of what I wanted to be the other book. You know, I was that. I also thought poetry book? Yeah, yeah. And I, I thought that was done. I actually had a lot. I was doing, um, well, now I could say I was hiding in uh, poems with Greek mythology. I was doing a lot with Artemis because I mm -hmm. have a strong connection to that myth. Um which is also interesting because that is a woman who bears no children. You know, there's something about that archetype that's really, and I I have infertility. So as it just intuitively is one I connect to um, in terms of what space do you hold as a woman when you don't have mm. the traditional path? Like, how are you seen? What does your identity mean to people, to yourself? Um, so I was doing that work uh, and that book did get, some responses from publishers. Um, but some of the responses were things like, it's just not cohesive yet. It's missing something, you know, <laughs> um, which is kind of like a more pragmatic response to tell you like, oh, go to look at the other stuff. You're not, <laughs> you're ignoring something here. Um, so between sort of the like big revelation, whoa, I need to pay attention moments, and the more pragmatic, like something about the other book wasn't working. Um, I think that's, there was enough good friction there that then I turned towards this one, started working on it with intention. Um, and then hilariously enough, finally started like, oh, you're a semi-finalist. Oh, you're a finalist. You know, it's like, then suddenly something was resonating with other people. Like they could go on the journey with me in a way that the other book wasn't wasn't opening up to for some reason. So, yeah. Mm. I like that. I, I maybe like is the wrong word, but it's striking me that, um, that it has to be a both and that it's not just the epiphany moment of the 531, but also mm -hmm. the external pragmatic responses that are both kind of pushing in the same direction. Yeah. Yeah, which uh, was probably the kind of like the right mix of pressure that I needed, <laughs> you know, to, to put the fire under me to actually do it. Um, and it did help that once 
I started saying yes more openly. Um, oh, I also had I had a dream. My grandpa was gone when I started really working on this book, but um, I had a dream where he came. He just kept getting angrier. So he had one because he's not he's a, like he's he was a big old bear type person. Um, but he came in a dream and he shoved a pen in my hand and said, like, basically, it was like, you you must do this. It was he barely said anything, shoved it in my hand and it was like, you have to do this. And I'm definitely going to listen to him. So, you know, I just got chill. Yeah. 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 I, I'm really so, so grateful. You know, I think sometimes when writers talk about dreams, people assume they're like, dreams must be prophetic or something. And for me, it's like, in a big way, it was like, God, we can't get through to this woman any other way. Someone go, she's okay. She's asleep. Go get her. Like, (laughs) this is the way she'll listen. So I'm just so grateful that like, thank you to Papa for finding me that way, you know, because I clearly was struggling with all the other ways. Um, but I do take my dreams very seriously. So I I, I honor them when they show up. Um, obviously not well enough because he had to get more stern, but <laughs> eventually I got there. <laughs> That's the process, right? I I'm also a person who who takes dreams very seriously. And I, I know we had migraines are on our agenda today. Yes, and yes. um I find as I have found this past weekend, as I had a migraine that sometimes those, that space or that, like, there's something about that, that neurotic thing that happens when a migraine takes over that pushes all of the ego and everything out of the way enough that certain dreams can really, some of the most like powerful and ridiculous dreams happen. Like Mm -hmm. I'm sweating out a migraine. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I don't think it's coincidence necessarily. Um, And I also think there's something to like having to be in that vulnerable space to get out of my own way enough to really Mm -hmm. hear what the dream is offering. Mm -hmm. I am just nodding fiercely. You know, people can't see (laughs) me, but I'm just, yes, yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And it sounds like we both had a migraine this weekend. So uh, yeah, I was moon migraines. Yes. That's, I thought this is really not fair and I'm Aquarius. So it's Aquarius new moon. And I'm like, come on, this is not the birthday gift I wanted. (laughs) Happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's February. So I get February birthday and then February book birthday, which is kind of fun. Um, But yeah, so um, migraines definitely like a phrase that came through the only words I could think of for the one this weekend as I was trying to like you know I don't know if you try to always find like a word for the pain or something it's like if I had an inventory of these things I'd be fascinated to see like how they all what they Ooh. all sounded like or felt like because this weekend the word that just started coming through was tinsel 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 and then I was like it's electrified tinsel it really felt like someone had electrified tinsel and was pulling it between the folds of my brain and oh my gosh. I, I just <laughs> Where else are you going to get that language but a migraine, you know? <laughs> Nowhere else. Um, fishing, fishing pole, fishing line was what kept coming to mind this weekend. And I was trying to describe it. I It was one of those for me this weekend where it's like on the edge of like the really bad migraine, but not mm-hmm. all the way there. So I yeah. sort of will trick myself into being like, well, I can kind of function, right? Like I'm going to try to do this thing. So I'll open the computer and kind of like mm-hmm. swoon in front of it for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just kept like picturing this, like 
fishing line from my brainstem to like my uh that penile gland mm-hmm. and the like hook getting in the penile gland and then someone like yes. re- um reeling it in so it gets mm-hmm. really tight mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I oh, that's I love that I mean I hate that image that I hate the pain that's associated with it I like hate that we both know exactly what that is but I love that image because it's it's so specific there's something about a migraine that creates a kind of specificity of being in your body and a specificity of sensation it because I'm not someone who naturally is in my body so it forces me in (laughs) yeah in a way that's almost part of the pain is how specific it is um, and it's, it's it's not a headache. It's different from a headache. Mm-hmm. It's different mm-hmm. from all of the other things. And it's so, even though it's starting, I don't know if for me, it always starts at like the brainstem mm-hmm. and then sort mm-hmm. of like spreads to yes. the third eye, mm-hmm. but it, it's not just there. It's like radiating through the whole body mm-hmm. um, in yes. such a way that it's rare that I get in my entire body in the same intensity that I am in it in those moments. Yeah. It's, do you ever have the uh, Alice in Wonderland syndrome where you're very small inside your, that to me is the most bizarre for someone who doesn't naturally like feel the edges of their body, you know, it's just this like, <laughs> it's like now I'm this tiny, tiny little speck floating inside of it. It's, I, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it to people uh, who don't have it because it's just such a surreal, sublime, you know, and then you get through it. And there's a whole other set of feelings and another way of embodiment, you know, um, on the other side of it. It's not just the event itself. So no, because I mean, it's always I joke that it's the migraine hangover because it's not it's not like like the migraine. I know that it's over when I wake up in like drenched in my own sweat in a Mm -hmm. puddle and everything is soaked. And then there's like this next 12 to 24 hours of just sort of like mining the experience mm-hmm. like like reflecting on any like ridiculous dreams or anything that came mm-hmm. up you know also washing the sheets yes. trying to clean it. <laughs> yes <laughs> um yeah. and it's it's just such a visceral and large part of how I measure and experience time I'm curious mm. as as uh how how that strikes for you mm. Yeah, time is really interesting because I am that annoying friend who's always telling you that time doesn't exist. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't exist. I just last week I asked Carl, my husband, I said, Do you think about your ancestors every day? And he was like, No, you know. (laughs) But but aren't we all just sort of floating on top of each other yeah exactly exactly so there is this feeling with migraines where time it's on the one hand fascinating like when I find out oh I've been in pain for three hours I can't believe it's been that long um it was like eight hours total the pain time not just the, the then the recovery and everything but this weekend it was eight hours of the like oh my god electrified tinsel um but I had no concept of how much time had passed. Uh, and and it just kicks you out of the world in a way like that. Yeah, I just can't relate to the normal day-to-day. Dailiness is not a thing for me. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't exist. 
Um, and so that's both like in the everyday and on a migraine day, but also, and I don't know if it's because of migraines or, you know, cart before the horse kind of thing, but like, I'm just not someone who sees time in a linear way. It's like, um, if I want to think about where I'm at and where I want to go first, I'm probably going to go talk with an ancestor or a dead saint or, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and it's not like a one-to-one just headed backwards kind of thing. It's like, a there's something that's living in all of this still, you know, that they're still hanging out. Um, I'm a really big believer that like my 12 year old self is still just as accessible as, you know, I am now. Um, and I'm probably making choices now that she's either really excited about or not. And if I can just make sure she's okay with them, like, okay, then I'm tracking, you know? (laughs) So yeah, that's a broad answer. As a spiral, like you have to spiral back to go forward. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it, I've found that like, I can actually point out when I was kind of coming, looping back around, like right now with where the book um, is landing in relation to things that were happening seven years ago and 10 years ago, it's like I'm visiting now, revisiting those, but on a deeper level, you know, and like there's something about this that is echoing back or or providing closure to some of those things, um, which is really helpful. Like it's it's like nothing's ever really done. Nothing's ever really there's always room. Some people find it difficult because I'm always like there's always more, you know, <laughs> there's always there more, um, which means I'm never satisfied. But the good news is there's always more, you know, so (laughs) there's always more possibility, um, which is also like, that's just a very poetry way of being too. I think it's like the poem can always hold more. There's, there's just, yeah, I'd rather live in that space than the linear space, I guess. Mm, I could not agree more. That reminds me of Diane de Prima and how Mm. she used to get all this like shit for, essentially like republishing the same mm. same project over but like with different like she'd play with it and kind of put it out as a zine or another chat book a few yes. years later and personally I find that incredibly freeing I love yes. I love that approach that like okay well you know here here it was in its evolution here you mm-hmm. know let me let me tinker with it let me play with it mm-hmm. let me you know put it out in this way with a little bit something different here mm-hmm. um, and I've never really understood that like well, no, you, it's already, it's done. It's closed. You must be done with it. Yeah. And I feel like we do that. There's something about, I don't love the way that with written word, it does have to seem linear once it hits the page to make it real. It inherently has to be in this linear appearing kind of form, because if you look at visual artists, painters are allowed to be obsessed and rehash you know, a certain image over and over and over again. <laughs> 200 <laughs> tulip studies. Yeah, exactly. And like, and we marvel at like the range, the depth, we have a whole other set of vocabulary for what that means. But yeah, I think writers have a lot more reticence to that. And, um, and there is also this feeling of like, like, you know, I put it in this book, I'm holding up my book now, like, I, I do have this like morning of, okay, now it's fixed. It's done. And that's just not my relationship to anything. Why would it be that <laughs> my relationship to, to a book too? Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I feel like you could have a lot of rich conversations around that. I would love to hear how every writer kind of relates to that sort of question, you know? 
I appreciate that you mentioned the sense of mourning as you hold, Mm -hmm. as you hold this completed, completed, I'm scare quote thing, um, (laughs) book in your hands. Um, This is, when did you get your first copy? What, like, what went through your body and your brain? Was Mm. elation, mourning, how, how are you, how are you experiencing and navigating all of that at this, at this juncture? I actually held the first copy just a few days ago. The my author copies arrived late last week. So, um my relationship to it as like a living object is very new, you know. <laughs> it's not this thing that's been like coming out of my printer in all these rough drafts, you know. Now it's a it's an object which I also have a very tactile. I love tactileness. I have that kind of relationship to the world. I'm the person who touches all the fabrics. So like to have a the book, only way to shop yeah, exactly. Like that. And how long are the sleeves? Can I tuck them into my hand? You know, <laughs> those are the two qualifiers. So my book actually has the um, title and my name on it are actually uh, the popped out, you know, like embossed tactile. So that was like my first real experience with it was feeling that. And I just, that was so knowing how much, how important that is to my way of being in the world. That was just kind of like, elation that was probably my first you know feeling um and then there's just the like overwhelm of it's real it's a real thing and I with migraines and with being neurodivergent I and have as I've processed what that really means as I've gotten more honest about like what does that mean for how I can make things in the world Mm -hmm. I've had this nagging question of like how do I know when things have accumulated I know the nature of my body and who I am means momentum is not easy for me. Like finding momentum, sustaining momentum. I'm never going to be that writer. I just literally can't, but it's only in the past year I've been able to admit that, you know? So having a real tangible thing now that says, look, it added up to something. This has accumulated this, these seeds you planted 10 years ago have led to something um, you know, that, that is like just a really big gift. I think that's probably the biggest thing I feel is just like, I have this relief to have an example of what accumulation looks like to me and can look like to me. And then, um, just sort of like this joy of knowing that it's off to start its relationship with everyone else now. So like I kind of mourn the things that I didn't know when I didn't know that I didn't know them, you know, there's like, oh, now I know those things and I'll never not know them again. And gosh, now I can look back with a sort of nostalgia for that. (laughs) But, you know, I'm sure the next thing will lead to those places too. I probably am already stepping in the midst of things that I'm being very resistant and clueless to, you know, I just haven't found out yet. So, (laughs) And the powerful work that you've set in motion just by stepping into that realization and that understanding that momentum and creation doesn't look the same for you as it does for other Mm -hmm. people. I know, I know in the midst of it this weekend, I had all of these expectations about like Mm -hmm. what this lunar new year, like what seeds I would plant because Mm -hmm. Jupiter is like big on the miracle Mm -hmm. grow for planting seeds right now. So I had these like expectations about, you know, what that would look Mm -hmm. like both for like writing and projects, but also just and none of it happened. None, mm-hmm. Like I, I slept all weekend. Um, and I was thinking about, about that and sort of getting in this trap of like comparing myself to, you know, people who are like, 
I'm writing a thousand words a day or I'm writing, you know, like whatever a day. Um, And so I'm just really struck by how much was set in motion just by your act of acceptance of, Mm. you know, this momentum isn't the same for everybody. And Mm -hmm. it's, it takes maybe 10 years to accumulate what another person might do in three or four. Yeah. Yeah. And then like what swings back in for me is that reminder of like, and that's why time doesn't exist. (laughs) 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 And then it's like, okay, once again, I'm free. But until Mm -hmm. I get to that moment in the thought process, I feel a little trapped, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Uh, that maybe that's part of the medicine for people like us is that we have to remember that we're free in some other ways and we just have to hug close to those ways you know because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because those are good and I wouldn't trade them for anything but that's not also to like find a silver lining in this I you know it's just to to sort of root with what you know is true for you mm-hmm Would you read us another poem? Yeah, I can do that. Maybe one one or two more. There are a um, lot of pieces in the book that deal with roots and rooting. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I've actually been surprised in returning to some of them, like, wow, ecology really is coming through in a lot of this, you know? I And my dad's a forester, and so I did grow up with that kind of... Um, he definitely added to my sense of specificity around the world. It's like a tree is never just a tree. It's also, you know, all of these things. So um, that definitely comes through in the book, um, which I guess you'll probably see in this poem too. I think I'll read uh, If I Have to Believe in Anything. Mm. It's the pink of the coneflower that finally convinces. I have decided on ecstaticism. I have decided on warm blood and salt, on tightrope tree line pressed into the sunset, on the surprise of tears when the clouds are placed just so, on the soft pod of milkweed that hardens like a woman about to give birth, on the long neck of ironweed and its purple crown alert, and every single spot of the fawn as she passes unaware. I have decided to let it be the dark joy. My grandmother carried home to die in the living room. The door swung open. She asked her children, did you see it? Did you see the sunset on the highway and how beautiful it was? Would this be the same grandmother of the papa that visited you in your dream? Yes. Yes, it would. <laughs> yes, it would. Yeah, <laughs> it all comes together. Yeah. yeah, they definitely, they were very special and she was, and I actually think about her a lot when I have migraines because she had a lot of chronic pain. Um, And there are some ways that I show up in relationship to my pain that I realize are actually a lot like her, like, (laughs) Um, and, and I think, you know, it's just remarkable. That's exactly the kind of person she was who would know she's going home to die and be in a bunch of pain and say, but did you all see the sunset? You know? That was the first thing she had to say, you know, <laughs> once they were all back together. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I, I'm really lucky that I kind of came from people like that, like that had I had that base um, and they were very Catholic and they had that tradition. But in terms of what their actual spirit was, 
that's what it really, you know, it's like, that's where I kind of go back to. I, those are the things that really interest me is like, what are those defining moments of like, oh, I see you and what you actually believe, you know? So. Mm -hmm. beyond the artifice of mm -hmm. tra tradition and myth and mm -hmm. religion beyond mm -hmm. the artifice of socially acceptable exactly. responses to coming home to die yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah yeah she uh she she if anyone was gonna sort of rise above artifice it would be her um she Christmas was her one holiday and she died on Christmas and we all knew she was going to make it happen that way that was oh <laughs> she was yeah yeah so um I definitely I talked to her a lot as I worked on the book her and Papa they were they were alive they were talking to you through dream in the book yeah um she has come through a lot in dreams and then Papa did they were definitely present for sure I could uh feel them a lot and, and I like to keep things around on my desk and in my writing space that are connected to different ancestors and everything um and I'm fortunate because I have a number of them and I'm known in the family as the object hoarder I'm the one that's like it's <laughs> yeah okay so you get it yeah I do yeah, it's my my closet is half clothing and half like boxes of when my mom was cleaning out my grandmother's um, trailer after she passed, like mm -hmm. collecting circle letters and whatnot. And I was mm -hmm. just like, send them to me, send them to yes. me. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with them yet, but send them to me. I know, but I want them. I need, I will take care of them. There's this like very protective thing for me of like, I both want to be with them, but I also want to be sure they're stewarded on some level. So exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Um, so where is the work taking you from here? Have you, have you imagined where, where, are you, where's the work taking you today, tomorrow in the time that doesn't, that is not real? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No pressure. It's just, it's out there floating. Um, yeah, I, right now I'm, I've been shifting to prose a lot, actually. Um, I, was really lucky and got a fellowship from Kenyon Review to do some work on my creative nonfiction. Yeah, I worked with Gerald Walker, who was amazing and amazing also because he is not a poet. And so he really helped push me into story more. Um, so I'm sort of now having this really lovely counterbalance of like, what is the what's another way of coming into things instead of always via an image? Um, so my prose is actually kind of challenging me to say, like, once again, where am I hiding behind an image? I need to tell something, tell a truth, be honest about a memory. Um, and metaphors are great, but they're also like a series of doors you can put in front of yourself, you know, <laughs> to say, oh, no, don't come that close. Um, instead, let's look at the lake again, you know, <laughs> let's look at a tree again. Um, so my prose is pushing me out of that a lot um, and for the better. And I'm trying to loosen up more with that too. Um, and I've been writing with prose about um, some things related to neurodivergence. And also what I really am thinking about is spiritually rest, spiritual restlessness and how, um, cause I can tell for sure the ADHD and my family line where I get it from is also the line that is very spiritually restless, that is full of missionaries and ministers and people like my great 
great, great grandfather who almost started a huge brawl when he refused to let the Catholics come on board, come on, on shore in Tonga, where he was a missionary, like, no, 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 I've decided I know what's right. You know, a very uh, impulsive, strong willed kind of, it's like, I can't believe I'm reading some of the stuff from the 1800s, the 1700s. And it's, it's how I think it's me. It's that, that same thread is there. So that feels different than poetry to me that feels like uh, a more inquisitive sort of like I'm investigating something directly so that's where the prose has really been showing up are you reading in these like personal journals or have you tracked down news reports mm-hmm. or t- tell me a little bit about this process it's very yeah exciting yeah you're finding it's... your ancestors <laughs> very present with you um it's been a little all over the place because uh, my dad and I have always been genealogy nerds, but it wasn't until my 20s that I realized that this specific line of the family had a lot of spiritual leanings that were like my spiritual intensity is maybe not an anomaly with me. It might actually be an inheritance. Um, so ever since then, I've been sort of doing genealogy, but through that lens. So yeah, anything from like, like, they were Methodists when they were ministers and missionaries. Um, and the Methodists are great about paper trails. So, <laughs> and more of those are getting digitized. So I've done that. My dad and I um, have been to New Zealand to meet our cousins there who basically the missionary work took a whole generation of my family from Cornwall to New Zealand, Australia, um, and Tonga. And uh, was they were very early. They basically were part of the ones that started the missions there. Um, so there's a lot, there's, there's ways they got involved politically that seeded, you know, contributed to things like the land wars. There's, so I'm really curious about how this is where like the religious identity intersects with so many other identities and you get into power and influence and kind of like, you know, and it's that ego thing again, where is this a calling and where is this ego? Mm. Um, So I don't know if I'll be able to answer all those questions, but I am endlessly curious about them. (laughs) Maybe it's not the answering of the question that is as important as surfacing Mm. and sitting with Mm -hmm. the questions. Mm -hmm. I hope I can do that. And I find it harder to do that in prose um, because I feel like, yeah, poetry is so much better at letting things rest. So I hope I, the word I often use is like, I just want to get to an elegant spot with it. I hope I can do it elegantly instead of sort of a, it's not something I want to argue or shape into an opinion. It's just like, um, have you ever read a ghost in the throat? No, Uh, but I'm about to write it down. Yeah. So, so good. And, um, and definitely a book that yes, prose, but very poetic and follows sort of like an obsession with um, it's an Irish poem that she's sort of unpacking the story behind it. Um, and it, I'm doing a terrible job of doing a quick summary, but cause I get too passionate about it. <laughs> start going, but yes, that it's, it's the perfect kind of example of a book. That's like, it's asking those questions. It's having a relationship with the material that's deeply personal, but it's not forcing any conclusions or wielding the material into something that it's not. So um, it's a tall order to say, I would like to write something like that. But if I could even be two steps, you know, five steps removed from it, (laughs) I'd be happy. (laughs) It's a beautiful book. I recommend it to everyone now. So All right. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, Yeah. I'll be looking for it myself. Um, 
I love that you mentioned that challenge of working in prose to be elegant while not necessarily being concerned with forming a debate or an argument. Mm -hmm. I used to think that prose and essays were not at all for me. I was just a poet. Mm -hmm. I was not interested in arguing. I was not interested in debating. Um, But as I was working through my MFA at Naropa and in the last couple of years, I've started really delighting in the essay form Mm -hmm. um, and really kind of loving the Zuhitsu and the like Maggie Nelson style Mm -hmm. vignettes. Um, And I, I think that that sort of boggy space between poetry and prose um there's there's so much possibility there um yeah the the free associating of someone like a maggie nelson you know like vignettes but also just sort of fragments like there's a fragmentation of being able to just let things constellate but not necessarily perfectly cohere Mm -hmm. (laughs) and trusting trusting that the spiral will come back around Mm. enough Yes. Or maybe not just trusting, maybe like constructing, I guess I have. Um, I don't know, trust is a good word for it. I, I definitely, I mean, the, for me, like resistance is on the opposite side of trust, you know? So <laughs> for me, at least that resonates as like, yes, how do you get to the trusting space? You know? Yeah. I hope that it, like, if, you know, if I write enough of them, right, mm-hmm. that it'll, that the spiral will, will work mm-hmm. its way back around in that, mm-hmm. in that revision process. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to, well, we can trade reading lists now too. Playlist, reading list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sounds good. Yes. Let's. Um, Emily, as we're coming to the, the end of our show together today, um, where can people find you and what do you want, what do you want folks to know about and look for on the, on the World Wide web? Yeah. Um, the easiest place would be my website. So that's emilystoddard.com. And um, the book is Divination with a Human Heart Attached. And you can find that there. I also have the poetry bulletin stuff that you mentioned, which is the spreadsheet and the data that's available there. Um, I do monthly updates for that too. So folks kind of always have a friend saying like, hey, here are the deadlines. Um, and we have submission fee support available. I guess that's the other thing I'd like people to know is that um, it's really a project of trying to increase access and ease in the poetry publishing process because it's so rough to get a book out there. So yeah, emilystoddard.com, that's where you can find that stuff. Um, And yeah, the book comes out, it's out in February. So (laughs) all this stuff is happening now. I'm very excited and I do, I love, I'm so grateful for the chance to, I mean, I, I'm grateful any chance to talk about these things, but to meet a kindred spirit like you, Ada, is just, mm-hmm. it's an extra thrill. So I really, really do appreciate it. I feel the same way, Emily. I I was just so delighted to get the random email from Pine State Publicity yeah. um, and then to and then to exchange some messages with you and, and just, um, what a gift, what a gift. Yeah, that's how I feel, thank you, yeah, yeah. If you like what you just heard, connect with us via email or social media. And please do check out some of the other Dynamite Fem On shows, which include Active Activism, Literature for Life, Fine Cut with Allison, Fem On Film, and Fem On Fitness, and many more. 
Thanks first and foremost to Rhea Carrington, producer extraordinaire whose brilliant brain birthed this collective. Thanks to Tanya, Allison, and Jess, fellows in creation here at the Femon Collective for collaborating in this digital haven. Big ups to the Comics in Motion crew for forging the path and establishing the fort. Special thanks to Tony Farina, host of the Indie Comics Spotlight, for instigating my podcast journey and for the origin story question. Shout out to Super Dummy Paul, host of multiple Comics in Motion shows and creator of our Pop Culture Collective newsletter. Subscribe to the Pop Culture Collective newsletter to unite with kindred patriarchy-smashing pop culture geeks around the world. Share your questions, show notes, hot takes, guest suggestions, and comments with us at femonshow at gmail.com. That's one word, femonshow at gmail.com. You can find me, Ada McCartney, at www.aamccartney.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter at aa underscore McCartney. Until next time, 